Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Hello, and welcome to this Federalist Society virtual event. My name is Sam Fenler, and I'm an Assistant Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. Today, we're excited to host a litigation update, Volick et al. v. James, with Professor Eugene Volick. Professor Volick is the Gary T. Schwartz Distinguished Professor of Law at UCLA School of Law and founder of the Volick Conspiracy. He is a prominent constitutional scholar, particularly in the area of the First Amendment, and has written and taught extensively on the subject. If you'd like to learn more about Professor Volick, you can find his full bio at our website, fedsoc.org. After the professor gives his opening remarks, we will turn to you, the audience, for questions. If you have a question, please enter it into the Q&A function at the bottom of your Zoom window, and we'll do our best to answer as many as we can. Finally, I'll note that, as always, all expressions of opinion today are those of our expert, not the Federalist Society. With that, Professor, thank you for joining us, and the floor is yours. Uh, thanks. Thanks very much for having me, uh, especially in uh, something about my own case. Uh, uh, I've uh, litigated quite a few cases as a lawyer. This is a rare case, not the only case, but a rare case where I'm actually the the lead plaintiff. Uh, so, uh, uh, so uh, I very much appreciate this opportunity. Uh, so, uh, this is a case uh, which uh, um, uh, the Foundation for Individual Rights uh, and Expression uh, is representing me and uh, uh, the video platform uh, Rumble, and uh, I think that cousin platform local, uh, cousin to rumble, um, in a lawsuit against uh, the state of New York, against uh, the New York attorney general with regard to a, a newly enacted New York law uh, that deals with supposed, quote, hateful conduct, close quote. Uh, so this is a New York general business law, section 394 CCC, and its title is Social Media Networks, Hateful Conduct Prohibited. Um, if you look at the text of the law, it doesn't really deliver on the promise of the title. I don't want to say that the law itself prohibits hateful conduct, whatever. We'll see in a moment what it means by that. Uh, but it is deliberately an attempt to target certain viewpoints that are that uh, some loosely label hate speech. Uh, uh, on on the internet and and to try to pressure social media platforms into restricting such viewpoints. We're challenging that on First Amendment grounds, and uh, uh, there will be a preliminary injunction hearing on Monday uh, on on this uh, this very question in federal court in New York. So the law defines hateful conduct uh, as meaning quote the use of a social media network to vilify, humiliate, or incite violence against a group or class of persons on the basis of race, color, religion, ethnicity, national origin, disability, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression. So they label it conduct, perhaps to fuzz over a little bit the fact that there's a free speech clause that might govern this this uh, kind of behavior. But this is what uh, one definition of what some people have at times labeled hate speech. Uh, obviously, this speech is uh, generally protected by the First Amendment. Uh, it's possible that certain kinds of incitement of violence and incitement that is limited to um, advocacy of imminent 
uh, unlawful conduct that is uh, intentional uh, and like uh, that uh, that is intended to promote such unlawful conduct and is likely to do so, uh, that might be punishable, uh, or that th- that category would be punishable if it were just a general prohibition and incitement. This kind of targeted uh, restriction and incitement based on certain certain categories is itself probably unconstitutional under the RAVV City of St. Paul decision, but certainly speech that vilifies and humiliates, whatever that means, is constitutionally protected. Look at cases like Snyder v. Phelps and Hustler v. Falwell and the like. So the law begins by defining this category of speech, which includes a great deal of uh, constitutionally protected speech, and then also define social media networks to mean service providers, which for profit-making purposes, operate internet platforms that are designed to enable users or share any content with other users or to make such content available to the public. So that does include networks like Twitter and Facebook, but it also includes our blog, The Volat Conspiracy, uh, um, which has a comment section. Uh, that comment section uh, is designed to enable users to share content with other users and make content available to the public. Um, we are a uh, uh, operating for profit-making purposes. It's a very, very small profit that we make. We make a little bit. Why not? Um, uh, and uh, so we are covered by it, as are uh, Rumble and Locals as well. Uh, so... Uh, so those are the definitions. Then what are the requirements? Well, the law says that a social media network that conducts business in the state, and we certainly know we have lots of uh, uh, readers in New York, and a couple of our co-blockers uh, are in New York, uh, shall provide and maintain a clear and easily accessible mechanism for individual users to report incidents of hateful conduct. So we have to have a we have to have a mechanism for people to uh, to uh, report such things. Um, and then it goes on to say, each social media network shall have a clear and concise policy on its website, uh, which includes how such social media network will respond and address the reports of incidents of hateful conduct. So we have to provide a mechanism for people to complain. We have to have a policy for how we deal with these complaints and we have to publish it. So that's a speech compulsion. We're compelled to create and publish a policy. And as at least as I read it, it says the policy uh, shall include how such social media network will respond and address the reports of incidents of hateful conduct. So it sounds like there's a second speech compulsion, which we have, which is that we have to respond to those incidents. Now, it's an interesting question whether these kinds of speech compulsions would be permissible if they're imposed on, say, a platform saying every platform has to have a policy describing what it does uh, by way of it moderating comment, comments and uh, of any sort, whether hate speech or anti-government speech or anti-police speech or libelous speech or blasphemous speech or whatever else. It's an interesting question whether that kind of content-neutral policy, uh, uh, excuse me, content-neutral requirement that the platform have a policy and it provide responses, whatever those responses in the policy might be, whether that's constitutional. But the one thing that's quite clear about this is this is a viewpoint-based law. It is a law that uh, 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 requires a policy for dealing with 
hateful conduct, which is to say hate speech in quotation marks, uh, uh, quotation marks literally from the statute of stateful conduct, scare quotes for hate speech. It's not a label that I endorse, but it's obviously a label that people often use. Um, uh, so that's a set of viewpoints. Uh, we have to have a policy for dealing with those viewpoints. We don't have to have a policy for dealing with the opposite viewpoints or for dealing with other viewpoints, as I said, like anti-government, anti-police uh, uh, viewpoints, uh, 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 viewpoints that target and vilify based on po political affiliation or social class or whatever else. Uh, and uh, uh, um, my view uh, as an academic, as a blogger, as a client, uh, uh, is that that violates the First Amendment that the government can't mandate uh, policies for dealing with particular kinds of viewpoints, can't mandate responses as to uh, complaints with regard to particular kinds of viewpoints, uh, that the First Amendment prohibits that kind of viewpoint discrimination. Uh, again, I should stress, on its face, despite the, the the title, which says hateful conduct prohibited, this law does not actually prohibit these kinds of comments, does not actually require us to prohibit, but it does require us to, based on the viewpoint of certain kinds of speech, to, to take certain kinds of actions generally to compels us uh, to put up a policy um, uh, and compels us, uh, at least as I read the law, uh, to respond to, to reader complaints. Um, to be sure, so, I have to acknowledge this is not as big a burden as an outright prohibition, but viewpoint-based restrictions are impermissible, even if they impose very modest burdens. Uh, and uh, uh, also, my sense is that this is part of uh, uh, of a broader uh, agenda on the part of New York and the part of others as well to try to restrict the speech, even this sort of speech, even more. And I think this is best nipped in the bud, if possible. Uh, indeed, the state has has pointed out that this law was enacted in response to the uh, uh, to the uh, among other things to the the Buffalo mass shooting, which was targeted at blacks, uh, and that there was the, the uh, uh, there was I think the shooter put up a video streaming video, which was on briefly uh, of the shooting, and the the, the apparent people say that he was radicalized by things he saw online. Maybe, maybe not, uh, but in any event. Uh, um, uh, it's quite clear that this law would not by itself do anything to prevent such shootings in, in the future. Um, uh, my sense is, again, that the New York government is seeing what it can do to try to suppress those kinds of viewpoints. Of course, by the way, uh, much of what would be labeled hate speech are certainly viewpoints I entirely disagree with. I don't like the definition, for example, statements that vilify certain religious perspectives, you know, certain religious perspectives deserve to be vilified. Westboro Baptist Church uh, is uh, is a religious group. Those are the people who hold up the God hates fags signs uh, uh, on occasion of military funerals. Uh, I Vilify means to sharply condemn. Uh, I certainly endorse that. But certainly a lot of of uh, attempts to humiliate, vilify, and such based on those categories, uh, uh, I think uh, I think are, are wrong. Uh, I certainly would engage in them myself. It's just I think that the First Amendment precludes the government from taking coercive action, uh, even very modest coercive action, uh, to to try to suppress those kinds of views, at least the way that, that it's doing here. And the way that, again, I see coming down the pike, if modest steps like this one are upheld, which we hope they will. Now, 
uh, the we filed this uh, uh, this uh, uh, motion uh, just I think a couple of weeks ago, basically, uh, and uh, uh, the court, to its credit, uh, uh, set up an accelerated briefing schedule. So uh, our reply brief is due today. Uh, the government's uh, response to our motion for preliminary injunction was uh, filed uh, two days ago, it was due and filed two days ago. So we happen to know what the government's positions are. So I'm gonna try to articulate them. Obviously, I'm not an impartial observer here. I'm literally a party to the case, uh, um, uh, but uh, but I'm gonna try to do them justice. Uh, so, so the the government says that the law actually doesn't even require responses. As I as I read their, their position, it's with regard to our claim that this compels us to respond to, to, to people. It says, no, 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 you don't have to. Uh, 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 to, to, to respond uh, uh, to, to anybody. You could have a policy that says we don't respond to anybody. That is an acceptable policy under the law. I'm, I'm not sure how that can be reconciled with uh, the text of the law, which, which says that the policy must, quote, include how such social media network will, emphasis mine, respond and address the res reports of incidents of hateful conduct on their platform. Sounds like we have a duty to respond, even though our response, maybe we won't take things down. Uh, but the, but the state's position is actually, we don't have to, we don't have to respond at all. So. It suggests that the law is, rather than just being kind of a modest step, is an almost empty step. Um, now, what about the requirement of the policy? Well, the state says that's a content neutral requirement because we could have any policy we want. Um, uh, it says, in fact, we could have basically no policy at all so long as we affirmatively state that it has no policy at all. So the state's perspective is we could have a policy that says, um, uh, complain what you, what, uh, however you want about anything you want, whether it's hateful conduct or otherwise, we don't care. Uh, we're not going to take things down or we'll take things down just, just in our own discretion, which is more or less, more or less my current, current, the current way I currently deal with things. You know, you can, you can email me if you want to and, you know, Maybe I'll respond, maybe I won't. Usually I do, but I don't feel obligated to. And almost always I will not take things down, but occasionally I could imagine a situation like somebody is. Uh, actually, we do. We uh, I do indeed take down uh, certain things, usually because they're kind of personal insults, especially vulgar ones that seem to me to, to poison the conversation. Uh, but so the so the government says, look, you you can have that kind of policy. So therefore, our compulsion, such as it is, is is uh, uh, if it is at all a compulsion, is uh, content neutral. But that can't be right. After all, the law does not require platforms to have a policy to handle all complaints. It requires them to have a policy that uh, uh, that handles uh, uh, in, uh, uh, users reporting incidents of hateful conduct. So if we have a policy, if we had a policy that, that says only if you have a complaint about hateful conduct, email us here, that would be permissible under the law. If on the other hand, we've had a policy that says, if you have a complaint about pro-equality speech, email us here, otherwise we don't wanna hear from you. That would not be a policy, I think, uh, that would uh, pro uh, provide a mechanism for users to report incidents of, of hateful conduct. 
um, uh, that would be uh, that, so that would not be allowed under the law. Likewise, if all that we said was, here's our policy for complaining about libelous content or threatening content or anti-American or anti-police content, let's say, not that we have such a policy, but if we did, that too, I think, wouldn't comply with the law uh, because uh, um, uh, because that would not include how such social media network will report and address the reports of incidents of hateful conduct, excuse me, will respond and address the reports of incidents of, of hateful conduct. Uh, they require policies as to these viewpoints, but they don't require policy as to other viewpoints. That's a textbook example of a viewpoint-based law. It's right there on the, on the face of the statute. Actually, in Reed v. Town of Gilbert, the court made clear that even a facially content-neutral law could be content-based in Therefore, in some situations, could be viewpoint-based if it is intentionally targeted at particular uh, content or viewpoints. But uh, but here, it's not facially content-neutral. It describes certain viewpoints right there on its face. So so that 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 that's my response, at least, to the claim that it's content-neutral. Uh, they also say, well, this is just a commercial speech restriction, because after all, it only applies to for-profit enterprises. So it's just like a disclaimer requirement or some kind of disclosure requirement as to commercial products. But of course, even though our website does make something of a profit from advertising, we, we don't charge subscription fees by any means. Um, uh, that doesn't make it commercial speech any more than the New York Times is commercial speech. Uh, uh, New York Times is a commercial enterprise. It seeks to make a profit. Um, and, but, but the court has made clear that that's not commercial speech. That's fully protected speech. Uh, likewise, I, whatever latitude there is for extra disclaimers in advertising or with regard to the sale of non-speech products, I, I don't think it, it would apply here. And in any event, even as to commercial speech, uh, uh, at, uh, attempts to single out particular kinds of political viewpoints, the Supreme Court has said, uh, are, are unconstitutional. Um, so, so I think that's kind of the heart uh, of the state's argument, but I'm sorry, uh, uh, I'd like to mention one other thing. One other thing that, that the state argues is that this is just a, a, um, uh, a, a disclosure requirement uh, that, that I'm quoting here, supports the state's interest in preventing confusion among consumers about what happens, if anything, after a report is submitted to a social media network. So they say it's a consumer protection measure just to make sure that people understand what they're getting from, from the network. And, and you can imagine a situation, somebody says, you know, I carefully crafted this, these comments, I invested all of this effort, uh, I saw the ads in the, that, that one needs to see in order to, to access the page, and then it, the comments were deleted, and that's kind of unfair to me as a consumer. You can imagine that kind of argument. But while that argument might be used to support a law that requires disclosure of policies as to all comments, nothing as to the consumer protection argument justifies the um, uh, the limitation in this law to particular viewpoints, right? Uh, the government can't have a constitutionally permissible uh, interest in protecting consumers from certain viewpoints, but not other viewpoints or protecting consumers' interest in making sure or knowing whether their comments will be deleted based on certain viewpoints in those comments, but not other viewpoints. So the consumer protection interest would extend as much, again, to all of the other viewpoints that comments uh, might include. But the law 
targets only particular set of viewpoints. It's hard for me to see how uh, the law therefore can be justified as a consumer protection measure. So that was our, my argument. That was kind of my attempt uh, to, to summarize the state's argument and my, my response. My, my oral reply brief, such as it is, my lawyers are working on a written reply brief, which is going to be much more detailed. Um, so timetable, uh, as I said, on Monday, there's going to be a hearing before the district court. Um, it's a preliminary injunction hearing. The court could issue a ruling right there from the bench. Uh, uh, with an opinion perhaps to follow, uh, or uh, I think probably a little bit more likely the court could, uh, uh take the matter under advisement, advisement, excuse me, and, uh, publish, uh, publish an opinion, presumably soon, if it's set, given that it's set an, uh, a, an accelerated, uh, accelerated briefing schedule. I mean, this is lightning fast by the standards of the civil litigation system. We filed our complaint on December 1st. Uh, uh, we filed our motion for a preliminary injunction on December 6th. And now there's the, the other side was given seven days to respond. We were given two days for the reply. And then basically less than two weeks after the motion for preliminary injunction was filed, the hearing is taking place. I'm assuming the judge is interested in rendering decision pretty quickly. Of course, if it comes out against us, we'll appeal. If it comes out against the state, I assume the state will appeal. You know, New York Attorney General's office presumably is interested in defending this law. Although, you know, sometimes when one wins uh, at the preliminary injunction stage, the state may see the writing on the wall and say it's not worth appealing further. Of course, the appeal would go up to the Second Circuit, and then we'd have uh, we we'd end up briefing it, and we're hoping that there would be an accelerated uh, uh, appeal schedule as well. Uh, but but in any event, um, the, the case is is going going forward. Uh, I have high hopes. Uh, I think we're in the right. Uh, well, of course, I would say that again. I'm the litigant, but still, still, I, I think I, I think that this kind of facially, clearly viewpoint-based law uh, is unconstitutional. Even though, indeed, again, contrary to its title, it doesn't actually prohibit quote hateful conduct, close quote, which is to say the expression of certain viewpoints. Um, so, so that's. That's my story, and I'd love to hear what questions people have and uh, and what reactions they have. If you have a great argument, we still have time to include it in our reply brief. That's excellent. Thank you so much, Professor, for giving us an update on this case. And we're now going to turn to our audience questions. Again, if you have a question, please enter it into the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. Professor, I want to I want to start off by asking you a sort of a broad question. Uh, the issue of hate speech has been prevalent over the last several years. Of course, there's a lot of misunderstanding. Some people don't know that however you define hate speech, that is still, in fact, protected speech. And you have others that think or perhaps they know that it's protected speech, but they think that it shouldn't be that way. In your complaint, you took some time to discuss why America's First Amendment jurisprudence has unfolded the way it has, why it has rejected classifying hate speech or some definition of hate speech as unprotected as unprotected speech. And I'm wondering if you could speak more about this evolution, the underlying theory and why you think um, hate speech, whatever that is, does indeed require First Amendment protection. Uh, sure. Uh, so um, the, the Supreme Court's current view, which I think is quite correct, is that the First Amendment protects viewpoints generally. 
because Americans are entitled to decide for themselves which viewpoints are good and which are bad, which are right, which are wrong. Uh, in Gertz v. Robert Welch, where the court actually upheld certain restrictions on libel, which is to say false statements of fact that damage a person's reputation, there are exceptions to the First Amendment. Uh, the court made clear there, under the First Amendment, there's no such thing as a false idea. Of course, there are, I think, false ideas, Each, but again, each of us must decide it for themselves rather than having it be forced on us uh, by the government. Uh, and there are many reasons for that. One is that in a democracy, people have to be free to talk about whatever legislative proposals there are out there. Uh, so, so with regard, to, just to take an example, gender identity, right? You know, there is a hot political debate about whether transgender athletes should be allowed on women's sports teams. At this point, it's pretty lopsidedly against allowing them. Uh, that is to say, uh, the, the polls suggest that maybe it'll change. Maybe it'll continue. Maybe it'll swing back and forth, but that's what a democracy is. It's a, it's a place where people can decide, uh, can vote on these kinds of policies. And, um, uh, and that includes the, the ha- it's pointless to vote on something if people weren't free to explain why they think no. That, that they think that transgender status is a mental illness, or even if it's not a mental illness, it's just not fair to allow transgender athletes on women's sports teams because they're not real women. Let's say that that's a position that many people take. They're entitled to say that. Of course, there are there are other positions that uh, that uh, are quite marginal, thankfully. So uh, so the view that uh, that we should reestablish race based segregation or slavery or whatever else. But even there, you know. Slavery was abolished by constitutional amendment. Constitutional amendment was facilitated by a war. But among other things, the North's uh, willingness to fight this war was stemmed in part from speech. And uh, the hostility of slavery stemmed from anti-slavery speech. And that, that, that democratic process can't be then kind of stopped by the government saying, no, 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 these views are so bad that they, they can't even be talked about. Um, uh, so, uh, so, and, uh, th- so that's the kind of the democratic argument for free speech. There's another sort of the flip side argument, which is what we believe in democracy. We don't really trust, fully trust democratically elected governments. One reason we believe in democracy is precisely because there's the opportunity to throw the bums out. But if the government had the power to ban certain kinds of viewpoints, it's very likely that it will abuse that power. And even if you like the Biden administration, imagine what a Trump two administration might do. If you like the Trump administration, imagine what a Kamala Harris administration might do or, uh, or, so, or something along those lines. And of course, this isn't just at a federal level. There are 50 states out there, and some of them are deep blue, some of them are deep red, some of them are a mix, some of them may have kind of odd movements in them that create all sorts of things that might uh, or, uh, um, uh, that, that might lead to some sort of some uh, 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 administration that wants to censor certain kinds of views. Uh, the First Amendment, by protecting all views, pre- makes sure that the views that we support are protected too. It stops us from suppressing contrary views, but it protects our views. Uh, so the question, so one question is, would you trust the government to decide which views are so evil that they ought to be banned or so harmful that they ought to be banned? And I'm not inclined to trust them, especially again, because 
even though there may be some governments that I may agree with, uh, some administrations, inevitably during my my uh, lifetime, there have been, of course, and there will be ones that I sharply disagree with. And I think that should be true for all of us. So so there, there are a variety of, uh, of reasons why we protect free speech, but this is uh, uh, these are these are, in a sense, the key ones. Let's focus more specifically on this hate speech category. One thing to keep in mind is the protection of this there have been a few false starts here and there, uh, but uh, uh, but uh, it has really uh, been around as long as the court's modern First Amendment jurisprudence uh, was uh, uh, was around. Uh, that the Supreme Court, uh, uh, its uh, very first case uh, uh, recognizing freedom of expression rights, actually involved uh, uh, involved uh, pretty hateful. Um, uh, pretty hateful ideologies, basically uh, revolutionary communism slash anarchism slash socialism, whatever else, an ideology that that led to tens of millions of deaths uh, uh, during the last century. This was in 1931, so it's before the really large amount of deaths happened, but it was pretty clear it was a hateful ideology. But the court said even that is protected, and it's in a case called Stromberg v. California, which struck down a state law banning the display of uh, uh, of a red flag as a symbol of opposition to government. But the very next case, the same year, just, just a few weeks later, Nearview, Minnesota, involved anti-Semitic speech. And the court, uh, the, the, there was an injunction against this anti-Semitic newspaper under a state statute that banned the publication of scandalous uh, scandalous and defamatory newspapers. Um, and the court, the court recognized that that statute could equally be used against any viewpoint and struck that down, notwithstanding, uh, the, 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 the particular ideology of the, of the, uh, uh, the, the publishers of the newspaper. Uh, I think should be unsurprising, although some might find it surprising. Uh, the case was 5-4 and one of the people in the majority, so the necessary vote for the majority was Louis Brandeis. Uh, the the first Jewish U.S. Supreme Court justice who had actually long been an advocate of the court for free speech, he recognized the importance of protecting even speech that was contrary, that was hate speech directed at his own group, Jews. Well, uh, so uh, so this has been, we've, we've lived with this for a long time. Again, there have been some ebbs and flows of this, but on balance, this has been the rule. And I think it's been a rule that served the country well. And I think that's particularly true Given what we have seen, which again should surprise no one, which is that once somebody does try to establish, not even as a matter of law, but a matter of sort of social commentary, category of hate speech that is a separate category, unsurprisingly, it ends up swallowing more and more. Just like in the 1950s, attempts to punish communist advocacy led people to label lots of people they disliked as communists or communist sympathizers or closet communists or whatever else. Uh, so, for example, um, uh, uh, it's, it's routine uh, nowadays to hear uh, critic uh, to, to hear uh, um, uh, uh, the um, arguments against affirmative action, let's say race-based affirmative action, or arguments against illegal immigration and such denounced as racist. Um, uh, likewise, the ver- very term "racist" has or racism has now in the in the minds of some extended to so-called structural racism, which includes really pretty much any kind of policy that has racially disparate effects, which is very, very many policies uh, indeed. So if if indeed the government is allowed to ban or even otherwise suppress uh, uh, supposedly racist advocacy, unsurprisingly, that that has already been used and will be used uh, to try to suppress other 
uh, kinds of uh, uh, kinds of speech that I would certainly never. Uh, I, I, I'm quite confident are not racist, but that that some people view uh, as that. Uh, just to give one example, uh, it is there wasn't legal there was expression through law because the law doesn't allow that. But uh, uh, there there was an incident uh, at a uh, private university where um, uh, where uh, anti Chinese government speech uh, uh, was labeled racist and harassing and such and was uh was was suppressed by the administration this was i think if i recall correctly these were stickers with a picture of the uh uh yellow hammer and sickle in the background of, of red which is of course it's on the uh it's on uh, uh i think chinese communist party flag um uh with the caption uh china kind of sus uh, which I believe is comes from a uh, uh, from a um, uh, video game. The kind of sus comes from a video game where you're trying to to, to identify uh, uh, identify kind of enemy agents who are who are infiltrating your your spaceship. I believe the game is called Among Us. Um, uh, so, uh, the, this was clearly an attempt to condemn the Chinese government. They used the flag of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, but, uh, uh, but the administration of the university interpreted it as, oh, this is an attempt to condemn people who are ethnically Chinese. Even of course, though, of course, many people, many ethnic Chinese in America are here because they fled the government. Like I'm, I was born in the Soviet Union and my family came here because we didn't like the Soviet Union. Um, uh, so, so, but these are just a few examples. All of us can know of, of, a, of a whole lot of others. There was an incident reported in the Wall Street Journal just a couple of weeks ago where a uh, uh, semi-retired partner at a law firm was basically fired for uh, speaking out uh, against abortion in a company-wide meeting where people were mostly uh, for abortion rights following Dobbs, saying that one of the problems with abortion is it has led to a black genocide, the theory being disproportionate number, a share of the uh, aborted babies are black. And the firm basically condemned that as racism uh, and, uh, uh, and fired her for it. Um, so if we were to have a hate speech exception, it seems to me it would almost certainly uh, uh, both as a matter of logic and as a matter of experience, uh, be extended to a vast range of, of ideas that people need to be free to talk about. Certainly. And, you know, Professor, I think there's a, a line of thought running through your comments that it must be uncontroversial that at the end of the day, somebody will have to decide what hate speech is. And it could be somebody that you like. It could be somebody that you don't like. And but either way, that that decision will be made. I want to move the the questions to the the case at hand. We have uh, several attendees and you touched on it in your opening remarks, but they're curious about uh, answering the law with some type of uh, compliance code, hate speech policy that uh, maybe is a bit toothless, which is to say uh, our policy is that we're not going to do anything at all. Have a nice day. Thanks for sharing your opinion. Um, could you touch a little bit more on that? And if you think that that's a feasible compliance method uh, and you know what you think about that? So New York's position is that yes, at least as best I can tell from from their response, yes, that would be that would be a permissible policy. And it's true that to its credit, the law does not require that the policy uh, actually call for the removal of these kinds of posts. It just requires that there be a policy. 
again, as I read the law, we the policy would have to provide for a way in which we will respond. So if people complain, we then have to respond, even if our responses are, uh, no, we're not going to remove any posts. So I do think we, under this law, we would be allowed to have that kind of policy. That's still a speech compulsion. And it's still a, a speech compulsion that the law itself specifically imposes in uh, uh, with regard to particular viewpoints. So we could have such a policy, but we'd have to have such a policy in response to a law that requires us to have policies that respond to hate speech, not a law that requires us to have policies that respond to other things. Uh, so, um, so, you know, if ultimately we lose, I don't think it will happen, but if we lose, then I would comply with the law, probably. Well, I shouldn't say would. I'm not sure. But probably, I, certainly I might comply with the law. Uh, and... Uh, uh, and uh, perhaps with a policy like that, it just it would still be an impermissible speech compulsion. Sure. And I, I want to ask you about one piece of the law in particular. One of the things that caught my eye is in one of the sections, and I'll read, nothing in this section shall be construed as an obligation imposed on a social media network that adversely affects the rights or freedoms of any persons, such as exercising the right of free speech pursuant to the First Amendment to the United States Constitution, or to add or to increase liability of a social media network for anything other than the failure to provide a mechanism for a user to report to the social media network any incidents of hateful conduct on their platform and to receive a response on such report. And again, in your complaint, this is a piece of the law that you mentioned, that it seems as though it's almost attempting to to get ahead of a free speech issue. And I'm wondering if you could speak more about that and what you thought about that piece of the law. Right. Uh, so um, let's look at start with the second part, B, uh, that nothing in the section shall be construed to add to or increase liability of a social media network for anything other than failure to provide a mechanism to report. Um, uh, and to receive a response on such report. Uh, well, so, yeah, uh, that, that does say that people can't then sue saying, oh, you violated this law by failing to take down some comment. So uh, they uh, that we, we could have to pay, I think it's a uh, uh, penalties of $1,000 per day for failing to have a policy. Uh, but we can't be sued under this law uh, for for failing to remove comments. Uh, so that's good, you know, in the sense that the, the law isn't as bad as it could be. It still requires us to speak in a way that that I think violates our First Amendment rights. So then what about 4A? Nothing in the section shall be construed as an obligation imposed in a social media network that adversely affects the rights or freedoms of any persons, such as the exercising the right of free speech pursuant to the First Amendment. Well, I'm not sure what to make of this. Obviously, no law can require me to do things that violate my First Amendment rights, because the Constitution trumps any contrary law. So maybe it's just conveying some sort of tautology that, well, we acknowledge that the First Amendment constrains us here. But at the same time, obviously, the New York AG's position is that the requirement of having a policy is constitutionally permissible. New York AG doesn't think that the requirement of the policy adversely affects my First Amendment rights. So, so we want the court to say it does affect our First Amendment rights. And if then the court says, 
even as a result, we're just going to interpret, we're just going to conclude that this law, that, that, that Volokh is protected not just by the First Amendment, but by Section 4A of this law. Well, all right, I suppose. It's just that Section 4A of this law doesn't really provide any substantive protection. It's the First Amendment that's doing the work, which is why we're suing, claiming the First Amendment protects my rights here. Certainly. And Professor, one of our attendees is wondering if there is anything of an objective standard in the law as to what qualifies as vilify, humiliate, incite violence, these terms. I think the law does attempt to uh, define them, but did you see anything in the law that um, that lets you know or makes you believe that there is some objectivity at play? Well, um, so the law defines hateful conduct to mean use of a social media network to vilify, humiliate, or incite violence against a group or a class of persons on the basis of and then those various categories. It does not define vilify, does not define uh, humiliate. Um, and uh, uh, that's, uh, uh, it doesn't define incite violence. So it's not clear if it's incite violence within the terms of, the, of Brandenburg v. Ohio, which is again, intentionally inciting imminent lawless conduct in a way that's likely to happen. Uh, that is a First Amendment term of art, but again, I'm not sure that inside violence really captures that. Um, and so so I, I, do, I don't think that there is sufficient clarity here. And beyond that, if you look at uh, uh, at the, the, the government's argument for what it says, well, well uh, uh, humiliate and vilify is clear, well, what do they say it means? Uh, let's let's have a look at this. This is in their opposition to our pre preliminary injunction motion. They cite some dictionaries. So they say, for example, a common definition of, of vilify is to under, utter slanderous and abusive statements against or defame. Okay, but it can't mean to defame just because if it meant to defame, why didn't they say defame it? Because that is a well-known legal term of art. Um, a defamation of groups, I think people say, uh, uh, of, of, uh, uh, as opposed to defamation of individuals, these days, I think it's generally accepted, is constitutionally protected. But I think at least it'll make it a little bit clearer. But that can't be, again, what they mean. Uh, likewise, humiliate is to uh, reduce someone to a lower position in one's own eyes or others' eyes, or to make someone ashamed or embarrassed. So there, you know, it's far from clear to me that that humiliate includes in all embarrassment. But that suggests that if, for example, somebody posts something that says, look, Scientology, here's all the reasons I think that it's a scam and that people who follow it are just being really foolish. Would that be tr trying to humiliate? Well, according to the government, it sounds like it would be. It would be making people embarrassed to believe in this religion. Uh, so, so maybe, although I suppose I would guess that the AG would say, no, 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 no. We're not. We don't mean to 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 deal with that because that is a perfectly legitimate kind of argument that I think even the AG would agree is legitimate. Uh, but then, how would how would they explain that how that's consistent with the definition they offer themselves in their brief of humiliate? Likewise, if somebody were to say, look, you know, I think that some religion uh, it could be uh, conservative Christianity or jihadist. 
Islam or extremist Judaism or or certain or even mainstream Catholicism is is bad for women. It's anti-gay. It maybe advocates in some situations for violence. That's really bad. And people who belong to this religion are are complicit in that. Well, would that be humiliating? I don't think that necessarily is, but would it make someone embarrassed to belong to a particular religion? Well, very hard to tell. Uh, so uh, it's not an accident, I think, that vilify and humiliate have not been up till now legal terms of art, as opposed to defame and maybe incite if it's defined consistently with Brandenburg, which isn't clear that it is. Uh, so I think any law that talks about vilifying or humiliating, uh, absent some more precise definition, I think is is uh, not uh, sufficiently clear. Hey, Professor, following up on that from our audience, are you or do you intend to argue that this is unconstitutional because of that vagueness? Yeah, that's Part of our argument is that the law, the law is fake. A part of it is that to the extent it's clear, it's clearly viewpoint based. Or sure. rather, some provisions are vague and some provisions are clear, but in a bad way. Certainly. And change gears slightly. Um, one, one question from our audience is wondering about how this law may serve as a pretext for investigations, which is to say, if this law is in place, the New York Attorney General um, may or may not have the power to investigate websites that the office um, does not like. Do you think that that is a risk um, that may be presented if this law is passed and found constitutional? Yeah, you know, I think that that's an that's an excellent point. Uh, again, uh, if you look at the the text of the statute. It says that the social media network shall have a clear and concise policy, uh, uh, which includes how such social media network will respond uh, and address the reports of incidents of hateful conduct on their platform. Again, the AG says, no, you could actually have a policy that says we won't respond. That doesn't seem quite consistent with the text. So if it is read according to its text, then presumably one would be liable, uh, or the very least one will be violating this law by not having the policy, and presumably by not responding, or not responding in compliance with the policy. So uh, what's more, presumably, if people do create a policy, that will just be a basis potentially for the government to say, oh, you're violating your own policy, that itself is consumer fraud, because you're telling them one thing and you're doing another. So then let's look at all of the complaints you've gotten from people. Let's look at all the internal communications about those complaints. Let's look at your files about how you did or did not respond to it. I do think that's a potential problem. And we've actually seen that in other situations as well, where, for, where the government was using overbroad statutes, sometimes criminal libel statutes that are broader than the law allows, sometimes so-called harassment statutes, basically as means for trying to, let's say, identify critics or to otherwise harass critics, uh, uh, even if it was pretty clear that no enforcement action would ultimately be forthcoming. Right. I think that leads nicely into another question from our audience. And this is about your strategy in the case. Could you talk about your decision to, to go on the offensive here, to bring a lawsuit as opposed to doing nothing and perhaps making the state bring a case against you to kind of flush out the yeah. idea of whether this is compelled speech or not. Right. Well, I think there are a couple of components to it. One is, you know, I like to follow the law. I'm a pretty 
I try to be a pretty law-abiding guy, generally speaking. Uh, and uh, um, I, I don't want to comply with unconstitutional laws. And I don't think I have any obligation to comply with unconstitutional laws under our constitutional system. An unconstitutional law is no law at all. But, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the courts will tell me, nope, this law is perfectly constitutional. I'd like to know up front. I'd like to know this up front so that I can so that I can figure out what my legal obligations are. I think I think that we ought it's, it's better for us to know our legal obligations than to be left guessing. Right. And left guessing and make making mistakes either way, either being over constrained by things that really shouldn't constrain us because they're unconstitutional or by thinking that the law doesn't apply to us or because it's invalid. But ultimately, it's found to be valid. Uh, so so I prefer to have that happen. But of course, not everybody has the luxury of being able to sue over this and having basically the foundation for individual rights an expression represent me for free uh, in this. Uh, so so I appreciate that many people can't do this. So then the second reason is, you know, even if I, as a First Amendment scholar, could say, look, I look at this law, I'm pretty sure it's unconstitutional. I'm not going to comply. Other people might feel pressured into it because they 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 are they're worried about liability. They they don't know First Amendment law like like I do. And uh, uh, they think, you know, maybe this would be upheld. So to the extent that we are helping protect others uh, against uh, uh, against this kind of uh, this kind of law, I, I'm pleased to have, be able to do that. Although, of course, the laboring or the people who really get the credit for this are the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. Um, uh, uh, and then the third point is. It would be nice to set a precedent that says, nope, these laws that aim at these kinds of viewpoints are just as unconstitutional as other viewpoint-based laws. Uh, maybe that'll be a signal to the New York legislature and to other legislatures and city councils and university administrators and others that, you know, courts are taking the First Amendment seriously here. And to their credit, the courts have actually taken the First Amendment quite seriously in a lot of these cases. The Supreme Court, in the recent case with Metal v. Tam, really reaffirmed there's no hate speech exception to the First Amendment. Um, uh, but uh, it's always good to have further precedents as to particular applications of that principle. And to the extent we can set that precedent, I'd be delighted to to, to play play a role in that. Right. And, you know, right at the end there, you start talking about precedent. And we have a question from an attendee who is wondering if you are aware of similar cases right now um, or perhaps other state laws that um, are trying to do the same thing as this New York law. Maybe they are, they're in the court system. Are there differing circuit interpretations of what you think is at hand here? Do you see um, anything across the legal landscape across the country that makes you think that maybe this could go to the Supreme Court? Um, what's your understanding about the landscape? Yeah. Um Generally speaking, the federal circuits are in agreement on this, uh, that when these kinds of uh, challenges to these sort of viewpoint based uh, restrictions on supposed hate speech have uh, have been filed, generally speaking, courts, uh, when once they reach the merits, some of them have been dropped on procedural grounds or 
not dropped, but thrown out on procedural grounds. But once the courts reach the merits, they follow the Supreme Court precedent faithfully and they say these kinds of restrictions are unconstitutional. So I don't think there's real disagreement among the, among the, the federal circuits on this. Uh, I don't know of any laws that are quite like this one. Again, there have been university camp, uh, university speech codes, uh, public universities that, that uh, have been struck down. Uh, on First Amendment grounds. Unfortunately, there's still others that remain not yet challenged. Uh, but I don't know of any laws that are quite like this one. It would be nice if there were a precedent that keeps her from being laws that are quite like this one. Right. Another at- attendee is asking, um, so we, we've talked a couple times about the New York's position that you could have a policy that says, well, we're not going to do anything. Thanks for bringing this to our attention. But the attendee wants to know, how does that policy of responding to hate speech pursue the end that the state is claiming they have in curtailing hate speech and whatever secondary right. and tertiary effects uh, may come from there? Right. I take it that the, the New York's argument is we realize there are limits to how broadly we can pursue any goal of trying to deter hate speech. So we're taking a very, very, very modest step. Uh, and we realize it's not going to accomplish the uh, prohibition on hate speech and such, but because that's not accomplishable. So so it's so we do what we can. I think it's quite right that it makes it hard to. Hard to explain how this law could pass strict scrutiny or intermediate scrutiny or any meaningful kind of scrutiny, given that that it really accomplishes virtually nothing, uh, at least according to, to, to New York's position. I think New York's position is, well, it doesn't have to pass any heightened scrutiny because it's just a regulation of commercial conduct or something like that. Uh, uh, I think, uh, again, I think it's a speech restriction and I think it's impermissible, chiefly because it's viewpoint based. Uh, but also perhaps indeed because whatever it's trying to do it's it's going it's not really going to accomplish it something else you wrote about in your complaints is that this law passed rather quickly it was debated on and passed in i think a matter of weeks is there any do you see any implications of that you know, I think that that's useful background. There's, I don't think that that's necessarily plugs into any particular First Amendment doctrine or the, in, in any official sense. Uh, I think the complaint, like many complaints these days, sort of tries to tell a story about about what's going on and includes includes some some degree of detail. And perhaps that might explain kind of the, the why the title says hateful conduct prohibited. The body doesn't seem to. Maybe there's a there. Maybe there's just some. Things were done in done in a hurry and done in a slightly slipshod way, uh, but uh, but the the this the main doctrinal points are it's viewpoint based, it's vague in certain ways, it's a speech compulsion. That's what's really doing the work, I think, in our argument. Sure, and I, I do want to ask you about the compliance issue. You wrote that, you know, and and what you said is maybe you will comply, maybe you won't comply, but even if somebody. Um, put forward a good faith effort at complying with this law. In the complaint, you seem to be arguing that that would be hard to do anyway. And I'm wondering if you could speak more about that. Well, uh, you know, somebody, I think somebody could comply with the law if they're willing to be chilled, like if they want to be super safe, 
They will take down things when there are complaints and uh, uh, they could uh, 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 at, at the very least, they would respond to every to every comment and have a policy that actually main, mentions hateful conduct. Uh, and uh, I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that partly because it's a compulsion and partly because, you know, our blog is a shoestring operation. We don't have staff. We just have the co-bloggers and the complaints almost invariably come just to me. So if indeed I have a duty to respond, then I'm going to have to keep responding. And uh, what's more, right now, actually, get some complaints occasionally. But the whole point of the law is to make it easier for people to file complaints. So presumably, if the law is upheld, and if I were to, or if the law hadn't been challenged, and if I were to have a policy, people would say, oh, let's follow this policy. Maybe let's let's even have an organized campaign. Oh, there's some commenter here. We want to get this stuff deleted. So we're just going to keep sending complaints to Volokh about it. And I'm then going to have to have to either respond to each one, which will take a lot of time and effort, or say, no, I don't have to respond. And again, it sounds like the New York AG in this these filings is saying, that's fine. But I think that the statute says I that the, that I we will respond to this. So that suggests that we must respond to it. Understood. Well, Professor, we have about three minutes left. I'm wondering if if you have anything that you'd like to leave the audience with some some final uh, thoughts. Um. You know, uh, I first I just want to say I so appreciate the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression is out there. It used to be Foundation for Indiv Individual Rights in Education until just I think a couple of months ago when it broadened its scope to free expression more broadly. I think quite wisely. Very glad that they are that they are uh, uh, representing me uh, on this, um, uh, and I much much appreciate uh, their their hard work on it. Uh, and again, I have to acknowledge. Knowledge. This is a. I have this luxury. Uh, I, I know it's a First Amendment problem. I I know people who who will represent me. Uh, the problem, the main problem with these kinds of laws is they often end up applying to people who who don't have that luxury. And I'm hoping that uh, uh, if those laws are promptly challenged and go up to court, in the court, either district court or circuit court, rarely Supreme Court, but occasionally uh, strikes them down, that'll send a message to state legislatures that, of course, you have to fight violence. I think violence, whether it's hate-based or racist or prejudiced or not, I think violence in general needs to be fought. Of course, you have to do that. And you can, of course, speak out against certain kinds of advocacy as well in certain in many situations. But you can't do it by either trying to ban speech or setting up mechanisms that that are for steps towards banning it, even if at this point they just create pressure and create kind of uh, seek to create internal bureaucracies and the like for handling these kinds of matters. Great. Well, Professor Volokh, on behalf of the Federalist Society, I want to thank you for sharing your time and your expertise with us today. I want to thank also the audience for joining us. We greatly appreciate your participation. Please, you can check out our website, fedsoc.org, or follow us on all major social media platforms at FedSoc to stay up to date with announcements and upcoming webinars. Thank you all once more for joining us, and we are adjourned. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.